of your eye. Huddled in the darkest shadows of imagination, it waits. Now is the time to face the fear. Welcome to Horror Lasagna. Embrace the trepidation. Let's talk about the first episode for season three, Hold the Dark, episode Hold one. The dark. Yes. This was a U.S.-made film. It was released in 2018. As far as a classification for the movie, it's literary, nature-based horror. And I, I can hear arguments about this really isn't a horror movie. I, be- I was going to mention that. This is way outside the normal horror exactly. realm. I would put this along the lines of Cujo, where you have something horrific that is happening to someone or a group of people, and especially in the movie, there's this slight undertone of perhaps something magical about it. Yes, but it never completely comes out as that. Correct. There's a lot of questions that really never get completely answered. And because of that, now I'm going to be perfectly upfront here i have a tremendous love affair with the state of alaska i've never been and mostly as i tell my children i'm afraid that i'll go and never want to come back and if you're alaskan viewers slash listeners you're like oh this place sucks as much as the next place i'm sure it does for you but that's going to kind of color it for me a bit and i believe this movie does a really nice job of kind of capturing that feeling of being in alaska in the winter yeah yeah and we got a buddy that lives up there from yeah. high school um yep. it, I, there were some shots and scenes looking at the landscape that reminded me of the revenant with leo dicaprio hmm. just because of the long shots with the scenery as the mountains and the forests and um, this is a Netflix movie, which is, I think, our first only streaming movie. It could be. Yeah, thinking through it. And there's actually, I think, three on this in this season that are Netflix, three or four Netflix v- movies in here. So that would be a good discussion for a bonus episode, how streaming services have altered or changed the realm of horror movies with stations like shutter and stuff. Yeah. And I think, yeah, we'll talk about it that, some other time, you know, it's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. We that, can get sidetracked and never come back. That to could the be movie. the academic presentation talk somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That, Cause that's definitely happened. All right. I loved the tone of the movie and it was mysterious enough that when I did some research, I found out this was based on a book by an author named William G- Giraldi. Yep. I, so I got the book, and for the first time, at least in this podcast's history, I read the book, so I actually can compare the book to oh, the movie. Nice. Wow, you're really stepping up your game. Yeah, looky there. And the novel is incredible, but it reads less as a horror and more like a study of what delineates between humanity and bestial nature. And... I think one of the main reasons is in the movie, they focus on a character named Kor, who is an aging hunter. 
And in the book, they focus on the Sloanes, Vernon and Medora, and takes away all of the mystery and the magic. Especially when you get to the end and there's the twist at the end of the book and you're like, oh my gosh. And that answers like, it answers things like, why did she do this kind of thing? Which the movie never really does come right out and address. That's interesting. We always seem to be opposites of the ones we, how we evaluate them. Because what you just said, I totally got out of the movie. I totally saw all that. And the twist, I expected it. I saw it coming. I saw multiple layers of the whole culture clash because it's not just one oh, yeah. culture that you could pull out of it. This movie's uh, horror lasagna worth of culture clashes. They're all yeah. over the place. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, in my notes, the culture clash in this film is threefold. You have differences between the Yupik and the modern world. The Yupik are the indigenous peoples of rural Alaska. You have massive differences between the civilized and the remote world. Because you have a sheriff's detective who comes from the city. Yeah. And <laughs> that made me chuckle. Yeah. And then you have the people who actually live out in the bush in, in Alaska. And it's a very different life between the two of them. And then you have this difference between human society and lupin society, the wolves. Yes. And oddly enough, they draw parallels between the two as you go through the movie. Yeah, and even the little bit over in the Middle East desert area, it, you can see uh, it, this is a definite movie. Again, this isn't for everybody. If you are the Jason Slasher type, you are not going to enjoy this. But if you like something that's different and a little deeper, this is one of those movies that really warrants a second viewing. Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> I'm laughing because I was reading reviews for this movie, and one of them's one star. It's like, Yada, yada, people get shot, people drive around. What's the point of this movie? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. If you want to boil it down to that, I kind of get it. Jeremy Saulnier directed the film. I, I did some research into him, heard some interviews he was in. I was not overly impressed with him in his interviews because he talks like a director. All the, new, all the Hollywood kind of jargon BS. Kind of like the stereotype in a comedy movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's and it's funny because Giraldi, I listen I listened to some interviews with him and read some interviews with him and he wrote this novel which reads fast. It, for me Stephen King is like a, a quick read just because I get into it and it just moves fast. Giraldi's book is like that, but when you hear him talk like in literary circles, the guy speaks so far above my head. I really don't even know what he's saying because he's referencing famous authors and different kinds of literary movements that if you're not an English major, you don't know what he's talking about. Wow. So both of those, my other podcast. <laughs> yeah. If you could, he, uh, he works with Boston university. He does like a literary newsletter out there. Oh, wow. Okay. So Jeremy Saulnier directed it. He's directed a total of nine things since 1998. He's not a prolific kind of director, but he's worked on, of the nine things he's worked on, I've seen four of them now. One of them's a horror comedy called Murder Party. It's very entertaining. He did Blue Ruin, and he also did Green Room, which is probably the biggest draw of them all because Patrick Stewart's in it, and it's about 
punk music and fascists in Oregon. So <laughs> that's a very common topic for movies. Yeah, it's a whole niche by itself. With one movie. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The film was based after all these book, and the screenplay was worked on by a guy named Macon Blair. And Macon Blair has worked with Saulnier in other things. He was worked he was the actor in Murder Party and he acted in Blue Ruin and Green Room and in Hold the Dark he plays Shan, the guy who patches up Vernon after he gets shot. He's more it seems like more of an actor than a screenwriter from what I've come across, but and now we're to the cast. Jeffrey Wright plays Russell Core. He's been in seventy seven things, dating back to wow. presumed innocent in nineteen ninety. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I recognized him, obviously. The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. Okay. Everybody shows up in that, apparently, some point yeah, in time. Yeah, it's one of those Nexus things. Yeah. He did a version of Hamlet. He was in Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace. So he did yep. a couple James he, Bond. He, he was Felix Leiter in the James Bond movies. Yeah, the there you go. One. Yep. He was in House. He was in the last of the Hunger Games films. He was Beatty in the Hunger Games series. He's done voiceover for Venture Brothers, BoJack Horseman, Rick and Morty, The Last of Us Part Two, and Batman: The Audio Adventures. It's a podcast. He plays. He's the voice of Batman. Oh, that's cool. Uh, in the Sandman podcast, he does the voice of Destiny. Oh. He was in No Time to Die. He was the voice of Uatu in What If, and he was in Westworld, the new version. And he was also in the movie The Batman. He plays Commissioner Gordon. Yes. Yep. yep. So. And again, this could be the whole discussion going back. That's a, he's a pretty big name. He's been in some big films and yet he's doing a movie on Netflix and it's a movie that probably would not have done well in the theater. Something yeah. that most people would have never heard of. So I, it's just the whole culture with the streaming now is so interesting to look at <laughs> culture. Yeah. <laughs> Culture, yeah. And I think it's one of those kind of things where he was excited about doing the project. And in one, of the inter- in one of the interviews, he was talking about how he loves to challenge race stereotype. Because in the book, it never mentions anything about Kor's race. And so having seen the movie first, having him be African-American didn't seem anything at all to me until he mentioned it. And then I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see that You know, that might not be where people first went when they read the book. So. He also is portrayed in the movie a lot older than he is in real life. They aged him up a bit for the movie. Riley Kia is Elvis's granddaughter, and she played Medora Sloan. She's been in 38 films, including The Runaway, The Good Doctor, Magic Mike, a Justin Timberlake video, Mad Max Fury Road, It Comes at Night, not a big fan of that one, and the Devil All the Time, which I haven't seen yet. but So she's been in a few more recent things, and she is the eldest of Elvis's grandchildren. So Interesting. Oh, nice. Alexander Skarsgård plays Vernon Sloan. Know him. He read the script and then just stalked Solnier because he loved the character of Vernon and really wanted to play him. He does seem like one of those actors. Like he, he only takes parts that he's going to find fun and interesting, regardless of popularity. Yeah. He has gotten some big popular parts, but he does definitely, this fits his style a lot. In an interview I heard with him, he said that he was haunted by Vernon and he was going to be haunted by Vernon until he got the chance to play him. So he just kept stalking near. 
He's been in 66 films. He started in 1984 in a movie called Ake and His World at age eight. He's Swedish. So a lot of his films are Swedish films you wouldn't know. His father was an actor, so he started young. Father was in MCU. Yeah. His brother is the It Clown and is now going to be the new Crow. He was also in Zoolander. He was in the Paparazzi video for Lady Gaga. Straw Dogs, Battleship, Eastbound and Down, True Blood, The Legend of Tarzan, Drunk History, Big Little Lies, The Stand, Godzilla vs. Kong, and now The Northman. That's why you're seeing him around and about on talk shows and stuff. Which we should talk about The Northman sometime off podcast air. Okay, cool. James Badge Dale plays Donald Merriam. He's been in 49 other things, including Lord of the Flies, 24, lots of different CSI shows, The Black Donnellys, World War Z, The Lone Ranger, and he was in Iron Man 3. Okay. There's the bald henchman who, like, is glowing all the time and blowing stuff up. That was him. Nice. Okay. He plays a policeman in this one, though. I thought I recognized him, but couldn't. The mustache throws you off. Yeah, yeah. Julian Black Antelope plays Cheon. He's got 45 credits to his name. Amazing job in this movie. A lot of the credits he has are like native-based things, so you might not have seen them. The stuff that you might have seen him in, he was in Penny Dreadful, Blackstone, The Northlander, True Fiction, The Secret History of the Wild West, and he had a role in the WB's The Flash. Oh, okay. So the film was shot in Calgary, which is ironic. And they started shooting in February in Calgary in 2017, and they wrapped in April. Saulnier is very big on being authentic in his work, and he hates using CGI for anything. So he didn't want like the breath clouds being added in post. The movie apparently was just as cold to make as it looks like it is as you're watching it. That That's what happened on Hoth with Empire Strikes Back. They had to go where the uh, Tauntauns were and where they could get some Wampas that wouldn't get too hot. Yes. <laughs> but it was cold. I heard they had to put the camera in the doorway of the hotel so it wouldn't freeze while they were trying to film the scenes. Yeah. It, this movie was nominated for and won the one award it was nominated for. And it was the Cat Cat Awards for Best Costume Design in a Contemporary Film. Really? That's cool. Yeah. That's an interesting award for this movie. It is. It was released at the Toronto Film Fest, and the budget and the gate for its fil- for its uh, festival tour, you can't find that stuff anywhere. So you don't know how much it costs, you don't know how much it made, but again, it wasn't really made for the theaters. That was just gravy money on the side. It was made for the streaming. Yeah, you don't get that with all the streaming. Yeah. And the movie seems to run the gamut. If you're looking at like reviews for it, people either loved it or they hated it. There's very little in the middle with this movie. I can see that, definitely. A lot of the criticisms you find about this movie are people who like live in Alaska and are bitching about stuff that's not authentic to being in Alaska. So, for instance, apparently where they're shooting in Calgary, like those mountain scenes, that, that mountain range is so popular and so famous that if you live up there, you recognize it right away. So the people in Alaska are like, that's not Alaska, that's Calgary. There's some guys driving by with a snowmobile and they have an elk on a sled. There's no elk in Alaska. 
and there's this one scene where Core has to stop and wait for a buffalo to cross the road. No right. buffalo in Alaska either when this took place. <laughs> so it's a lot of stuff like that people are complaining about. But yeah, we, it's funny because you get that with everything. Baseball movies and cop movies and computers. And- yeah. And it's funny because if the nitpicks are really what you're going after, then you can't really have too big of an issue, I suppose. Yeah. The movie opens really intimately with this establishing shot of the town of Kilut. It's a small rural community hidden way up in Alaska. There's a boy playing alone in the snow. There's a wolf in the distance, and it looks at him. And then the scene cuts to the cabin interior as Medora is making tea. She's the female lead. She looks outside and sees the snow her son was playing with, but he's gone. And there's this voiceover. Because she sends a letter to Kor talking about how wolves in the area have taken children from the town and now her son is gone. She wants him to come and find and kill the wolf that took her son and return his remains. She's read his book and she knows he's hunted wolves before and has respect for them. And then while this is all happening, there's this establishing scene of who Kor is. It's playing in the background. You see that he has a life. It's a very mainstream contemporary life, but it looks very lonely. He's been painting wolves in his own time. She says her husband's at the war, and when he comes home, she must have something to show him. And we see Cor on a plane on its way to Alaska to help her. Yeah. The beginning is very mellow, and that's the mood throughout the whole thing. Even when there's bodies discovered and there's wolves coming in, it still has a mellow, somber feel about the whole thing. It reminded me a little bit of parts of Let the Right One In, or uh, even The Witch. The Witch had that same type yeah. of feel. Yeah. I think they achieve it like tonality. Everything's very blue yes. in, the mo- in the movie. And then the music for it is very ambiguous sounding. It's It doesn't have a whole lot in the way of rhythm, but it's got a lot of tones that are layered on top of each other and strange sounds like, like a drumstick across a cymbal head yeah, kind the- of thing. The music never detracted from the movie. It never stuck out a whole lot. It's definitely nothing you're going to be humming afterwards. For sure. But it definitely adds a, a, a specific tonality yeah. to the film as it's going. He drives to Kalut, passing only a logging truck, a bison, and a dog sled on the way up there. Um, the citizens of Kalut aren't friendly. They like note his passing as he pulls into town, but they're not mean to him either. Curious, maybe, but that's it. Medora meets him at the door. She's holding his book and she's comparing his photo on the back to him to make sure it's actually him, which is a strange thing to do when you live in the middle of nowhere. If someone pulls into your driveway and you've invited someone there, you would think that it's just going to be who you invited, not some random person because you are literally in the middle of nowhere. He says he's sorry for her loss. She didn't think he would actually come and she pushes him to see if he'll kill it and he dodges the question saying he came to help and to explain if he can she said she'd kill it if she could and she went looking for it and core points out that's not a good thing that you couldn't find it because the wolves are over 100 pounds they run in a pack they're elite killers you don't want to just stumble upon them he then looks at the wall and introduces this vaguely supernatural element in the film because there's an indigenous mask hanging on the wall and he just notes it Nothing said about it. He just looks and the camera pauses on it. So you see it's there. And unlike a lot of uh, other horror movies, it doesn't glow. It, 
it doesn't yeah. do something. And no weird wavy effect coming off of it. <laughs> the music intensifies. But that's, you got to, things like that in a movie like this. If you're going because you want that blow and, oh my gosh, it's magical, it's possessed, it's whatever. Now, there's arguments that the mask had ancient spirits about it. It possessed them. There's all sorts of things you could argue. But again, that's one of the, you and I could probably sit down over a couple beers. We could probably talk about this movie for a very long time. Get yeah. Bob involved and we'd be up all night just because there's all these little things like that in there. You got to be ready for it or enjoy those things because I can see a lot of people. My father would never enjoy this movie whatsoever. I think that's one of the nice things about this movie is it's a super realistic horror movie in that the supernatural elements are so subtle that you could argue that they don't exist or you could just accept that they do. Yes. And, and that's I the kind that. of thing that happens to us all, you know, how many times you've been driving along and somebody just misses you and you're like, oh, your guardian angel was protecting you. Yeah. Or statistically, the chances of them hitting me were pretty slim. It's that kind of thing. You can choose to believe it or not. You can't prove either of them completely. Right. Yeah. And I will say the mother is so weird and it doesn't yeah. stop. And that's another part of the whole argument. Yeah. It's, it is. She's very disconnected throughout the whole thing. Oh, that's the perfect word. I was looking for that. That's yeah. it. Exactly. Like yeah, she's it, in sh- uh, perpetual shock. Yep. She's in shock constantly. She asks Cor if he has any children. He says he has a daughter who wanted to be in Alaska and she teaches in Anchorage. And Medora says that city is not Alaska. And there's your culture clash right there. If you live in the interior of Alaska, that stuff where Mike lives in Fairbanks and stuff. That's not Alaska. This is Alaska out here in the middle of nowhere. They have these long language shots of everything. He just, he lets the camera, he does a very good job of letting the camera soak in the natural beauty of where they're at. Yes. She looks out and she says, do you have any idea what's outside those windows? How black it gets, how it gets in you. And then she goes to show him where the children were taken and she criticizes his boots. Says, are those the only boots you have? He says, yes. So she gives him a pair of Vernon's. Right. Now that line, how it gets in you, that actually is so important to the movie. That's almost a theme of the movie right there. Yes. So it's, and it's an ancient theme, right? Joseph Conrad's the heart of darkness. That's what we're talking about here, where you have this natural violent world. And if it gets in you, you are just as natural and violent as it is. And again, you could go back to the whole spirits and the ancient spirits of Alaska argument they're walking through the forest there's this discussion of how long she's known vernon and she says forever she's never doesn't have a memory that he's not in and he left her to go to the war alone with a sick child and as we go through all the flashbacks that involve bailey their child none of them make him look sickly but she perceives something else in him and this comes up this is another argument theme of the movie right there too Other children have been taken throughout the winter, and the town has actually taken to having people escort the children to and from school by armed adults. And Vernon's friend Chion had a daughter who was taken. Cor asks if he could talk to Chion, and she says, no, I don't suppose you could. (laughs) Yes. And once you meet Chion, you understand. We find out that he did kill a wolf at one point in time, and he felt horrible about it. And he points out that what happened there was very rare. And then she replies with this perfect answer to that. 
what happened here happened to me. So no matter how rare it could be, it did just happen to me. And so I feel I have strong feelings. about yeah. it. She mentions that there's hot springs and it's a good place. It's a place of warmth and a good place to get clean. It comes up in conversation because he's talking about San Diego or someplace warm he, with water. Yeah. He's talking about, yeah, somebody going by and warmth and stuff. She's like, I'm yeah. never warm. And it gets, and that slight mention becomes important later on because that's how they end up tracking her down. We cut to the evening. She's fed him. His daughter's estranged and his wife is better off without him. In the book, you find out his wife actually has severe dementia and is actually hospitalized. So he will sometimes go and visit her, but she never even recognizes him. Half the time, she doesn't even wake up when he's there. So he's is as alone as this movie kind of portrays him as. He's sleeping on the couch and he wakes up to hear Medora asking, is he up there? Is he down there? And she's just repeating these questions over and over again. She's in the bathtub, like violently scrubbing her back, almost in a kind of fugue state. Yeah. Like she's not even like her whole state, the whole movie. Yep. She gets out of the bath and walks to the window, looking out at the darkness. Then she comes down and lies next to him on the porch, on the couch. (laughs) It's a little cold to be laying down on the porch out there. She takes his hand and she puts it on her neck and he's like struggling to, she wants him to strangle her and he's struggling to not. The entire scene is played out with this sinister underlaying music to heighten the tension. And if you thought she was sleepwalking, she's silently weeping and blinking the whole time. So she's actually conscious during this whole thing. And she starts off with the mask on and there's the possession thoughts. And again, that's really as far as it goes. The whole movie could have revolved around these spirits from the mask inhabiting people and possessing them. And it could have been a completely different movie, but it really wasn't. It was that hint. And it, so it's, are they choosing this? Are they honoring the ancestors or something like that? It, there's a yeah. lot of questions you could bring up philosophically with it. And I note in here, unlike a French movie that can take almost anything and somehow make it sexy, here you have Elvis's granddaughter naked climbing onto a couch with a reclining man, and it is not sexy at all. It's actually jarring. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. And then just to add the cherry on top for being disturbing, outside, Chion is smoking, looking through the window, watching the whole thing happen. Yeah. And that's not the only time something like this, somebody's watching through the window either. Yeah, there's observers throughout this whole movie. Now we cut to Vernon in the war. He's a M60 gunner on an armed vehicle, and he's good at his job. They're driving along, tracing a truck full of insurgents. Unlike his companion, who's the driver of the vehicle, he's just literally doing his job. He's emotionless. He's effective. He is great at killing things. And this is where he should be. He is just, he is a stone cold killer. War is like the perfect situation to find him. And he's, unlike his driver, who when the whole thing is done, he's oh, you're a killer. And he walks over and takes a selfie with the bodies and the burning. In the book, he walks over and cuts an ear and a tongue out of the people as a trophy to take back with him. Vernon wants nothing to do with that. He's just here to do a job and he does it. And that's it. And actually, I thought this scene probably would have been better earlier because they're talking about the boy disappearing and the wolves taking him and they got word to the father. And so his emotionless reaction, 
at first I was taking it as his reaction to hearing about his son die and he's just in shock, upset, and the, he overreacts with shooting that gun all over the enemies that it was a reaction to that. So it, that threw me off a little bit until I realized, no, that's how he is. And it's important to note that this actually happens before he finds out. Okay, I thought he had already found out. He doesn't find out until in a second. He goes into town. He's walking through town. He hears this sound of distress, and he finds the driver from the previous scene raping a village girl. And he very quietly, he takes a cigarette out and sets it on the windowsill, which is class. And then he sneaks in and stabs the guy in the side. Then he takes the knife and hands it to the girl and walks away. This is your right. Go ahead and do what you're doing. And then she does. She kills the guy. A lot. Yes. (laughs) As he's walking away, he's walking through an alley. He gets sniped in the neck. It's a deep grazing wound, but it's still a grazing wound. And he ends up going to Germany to recover. And that's where he finds out about his son. But they left that part out of the movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought he had already found out. So that's cool. But it does show you that he's an incredibly effective killer. He's not afraid to do what he feels needs to be done. And he's got like this set of this moral code that he knows about and he's willing to enforce it. And they're definitely making the parallels between a wolf pack and what he's doing. And that's the foreshadowing hints for later. Yeah. We go back to Alaska and Medora is packing things up for core and she's asking him to find it and kill it. And she stands on the porch to see him off as he disappears off into the morning. As he's walking out, there's a Yupik woman standing by a fire pit. And she tells him he's going the wrong way if he's going for a wolf's tooth. She says, that girl knows evil. She'll tell you. And Cora is polite and claims that Medora knows grief. Um, and she tells him to go back the way he came. Now, he's walking away and he's got a set of snowshoes on it, the back of his Those were snowshoes that the actor had, and they put them on the pack, and they thought that looked good. Once he got out there, he realized the snow was so deep and light that he needed the big snowshoes. So the little ones, he was actually walking through waist-deep snow, because the small snowshoes don't lift you as much as the bigger surface area. So, Yeah, I was wondering why they were on the pack and he wasn't wearing them. He walks out into the remote reaches of the area. First, he comes across the hot springs that Medora mentioned earlier. And eventually, like a good tracker who's an expert on wolves, he finds the wolf pack. And he does so by howling. That was actually the actor making that howling noise. And when he would do it, it, when he did it for all those takes by the end, the actual wolves in the area were howling back to it. (laughs) That's beautiful. It's pretty cool. He travels to where he finds the actual tracks. He spots the pack, but he doesn't see any signs of Bailey having been eaten by them. They are presently eating their own pups. Yeah. Which, from a biological standpoint, that's called savaging. I found that out from him mentioning it. Then he falls. Now, wait, before you jump to that, he has him lined up to shoot. He's watching him eat the pups. And he obviously knows about wolf behavior, wolf culture, because he realizes what's going on. But I like this because he didn't just shoot. He probably could have taken out two, three of them easily, even with that rifle. But he doesn't. And it's it was almost that hunter in the movie trope where he admires his prey. He admires and you know who he's hunting. And that's a yeah. pretty big trope. But he understands them also. And that's important too, because 
that's what leads to the stuff coming up near the end a lot too. Yeah. In the book, they point out that he did hunt down and shoot a wolf and he felt horrible about it forever. That's why he started painting wolves as some sort of way to try and atone for it. So he never had any intention of actually shooting the wolf. He was hoping to come out and find maybe an ill one or a sick one that he could take back and be like, hey, here it is. But they don't exp- they don't explicitly explain it in the movie. And it works because, yeah. as you're pointing out, he respects the wolves and you get that from the movie. You could see it in his face. I mean, that was a pretty good job of portraying that in the movie by him. And they are beautiful animals. It's hard oh, yeah. to watch this and imagine somebody joyously wanting to go just shoot them. Yeah. Fill the comments, all of you ranchers out West. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not saying there's not a reason, but just and the whole pup being eaten, pay attention. That's the next little theme metaphor for the whole thing too. He falls. He like falls down this slope and that was actually the actor. He did fall. They like recorded it and he like got up and he's like, is that good? And they're like, yeah, because they were afraid he would actually get hurt if he tried to do it again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the pack takes note of him and they scram- and he gets up and scrambles to get his gun because the pack is coming. They're coming running, but they stop short. He gets his gun. He gets his shot lined up, but he can't do it. And the wolves leave him be. He And he, as this hunter of wolves, is basically defeated by his own morality because he can't. He had the shot. He couldn't do it. And Um, you could argue some of the paranormal in there too. They detect one of their own or something along those lines. Again, the movie's shot in a way that it's very ambiguous in a lot of things. He heads back in the darkness that he left Keyloot in. And he returns to an empty cabin. It looks as though someone's packed in a hurry. He's looking around for Medora. He finds a door down to the root cellar and goes down to the root cellar and finds the body of a strangled boy wrapped in plastic. And here is Bailey. He's in a state of shock. He stumbles out of the cabin crying for help. Chion is the first one there and he runs into the cabin. That old Yupik woman is out there and she's, and he's, you knew, he accuses. And she says, leave us to the devils. And she walks away. When she goes, Back inside into the root cellar, Chion and the other Yupik are down there having a conversation in their native tongue. You don't know what they're saying. Which I thought was interesting again, too, because most of the time you would get the translation to hear what the they're subtitles. saying. Yep. So you have to pick up on it. But the choice to not let us English speaking people know was an interesting one. Because I even stopped and I looked to make sure the subtitles and checked it because I'm like, that's weird. But that's how it was. Yeah. And I think it's because you don't see what happens when they're down there until Cor shows up. He comes back down the stairs. And so he's standing there listening to them speak and has no idea what they're saying, just like we're standing there right. listening to them speak and have no idea what they're saying. Chion asks Cor where Medora is, and he doesn't answer. And the Yupik all leave, leaving Cor to stand in the cellar with the body of the boy. And then the police show up. Headed by Detective Merriam, Cor is in a state of shock. They talk about time. Because Kors, it's got to be midnight, and he's no, it's three thirty p.m. or the sun goes down at three thirty p.m. Right. It's seven o'clock. And right about here, I was like, yeah, it has been dark a whole lot throughout this movie. So I kept waiting for the vampires to show up. <laughs> Thirty days a night. Both Kor and Miriam are confused by Medora's actions. Kor goes to a motel, and Miriam tells him to stick around in case they have any questions. 
Kor suggests he speaks to the villagers, but Merriman informs him that they did, and then he reads their responses. The Yupik claim that Medora was a Tornok, or a wolf demon. Her blood is cursed, and she can slip her own form. And Miriam is writing this all off as superstitious mumbo-jumbo. But here's the supernatural element. What if they're right? Yeah. He asks Kor how he knew Medora had done it, and he tells him about wolves savaging. And if it's a bad time, that's what they'll do. They'll kill their own young, basically for the benefit of the rest of the pack. The sheriff says, we're not talking about animals here, Mr. Kor. And Kor replies, if you say so. Yeah. Maybe we are talking about animals. And again, there's some of the culture clashes, like several right there. The city boy who's actually living up there, as opposed to the hunter who's from somewhere else and understanding that uh, animal culture. You know, again, this is somebody should take this movie for their senior thesis or something. Yeah, you have Kor who understands the culture clash between human and wolf better than the people who live up there. And then you have Miriam who understands the clash between the people in the civilized and the remote areas. And then you have Vernon who understands the clash between the Yupik and the actual non-indigenous people who are in the area. Right. Yeah. There's a flashback and Vernon is talking to Bailey after Bailey killed his first deer. And then Bailey accuses his father of killing a person before, which Vernon does not say, doesn't say that wasn't the case. Bailey says his teacher says that's bad. And Vernon says that sometimes it's necessary to protect what you love and what you need. Vernon says this. Vernon says when he goes away, he'll always be with him. And Bailey says, don't lie. So the kid already is showing like this kind of very mature, fatalistic outlook on life. Yeah. At what? Was he eight, maybe? Yeah, yeah. And it's an uncomfortable scene overall. But yeah. that part with him saying sometimes it's necessary, when the boy says, don't lie, what part of what was said is he accusing his father of lying about? Uh, Again, you could argue that. Yeah. It is everything his father does in the army, or are they hinting that he killed someone some other time? Did kill someone some other time. In the book, they talk about it. Some drifter came through town was like hanging out at their house and just late one night Vernon went out and killed him and he and Cheon went out and buried the body. Oh, okay. I thought that in the movie, but it was again, could it be? Could it not? Yeah. Hinted at. And the book confirms Vernon is now in Alaska. He's at the airport and Cheon meets him there. And without saying a word, hands him a buck knife and they walk out of the airport together. In fact, they drive to the police department in the dark silently and they're sitting together at the morgue silently they don't speak they're old enough and close enough friends they don't need to they can just be with each other core is sitting opposite of them and vernon asks him if he's wearing his boots this becomes a big deal because there's always that thing about walk a mile in another man's boots oh yeah that's yeah and throughout this movie core is constantly wearing vernon's boots all the way up to the end He's wearing, still wearing Vernon's boots. And he's the one that understands him the most throughout the movie. Yep. Oh, man, I didn't pick up on that one. That's good. Core says, yes, I'm wearing your boots. Vernon asks if he was the one who found Bailey. The cops are telling him how they're going to track her down and she'll answer for it. And Miriam introduces Core to Vernon and asks if he has any questions for Core. And he says, can you raise the dead? 
Cor says no, and then Vernon's like, then I have no questions for you. He heads back with Miriam to ID the body, and it's this sad, touching scene, but again, that ominous musical overtones to it makes it sad and touching, but also, this is the floodgate, floodgate bursting right here. Yeah. And he tells Bailey, he leans down and whispers to Bailey to remember him. Yeah. Which, again, talking to ancient spirits or whatever, you could, it's so good in how the little subtle things they keep adding in. Yeah. And I, I think it's really fascinating how the cops are all, we're going to get her, we're going to track her down, we're going to make her pay for what she did, Vernon. But kind of, we're on your side. Never considering that maybe Vernon's not really interested in you tracking her down. And in fact, Vernon won't shake Miriam's hand when they go to leave, but he calls Cor Wolfman and walks over and shakes his hand. And Miriam takes Cor back to his hotel. Then we go back to Chion and the cops and they're making this small talk. And then Vernon pulls this gun out and shoots every cop there. And super efficiently, super cleanly, right? One yeah. to the head, one to the head, one to the head, chest. Walks no emotion. In. No, none at all. Walks in, kills the coroner, kills the coroner takes the investigative investigative file and Bailey's body and he and Chion drive off into the night. They bury Bailey's body in the snow and ice inside this wooden box. They cut open Vernon's arm and use his blood to trace symbols on top of the makeshift coffin. And then Chion takes him back to the cabin and drops him off, tells him where to find a vehicle and says, go on brother. I'll buy you before they part ways. Vernon says he's sorry. That was a pretty intense couple moments there with what they're doing. But again, this movie treats it completely different than some more action-based horror movie. You oh, know? yeah. It definitely had a completely different feel about it. It's almost an afterthought. Yeah. Like the drawing of the rune on top of the, on top of the coffin. It was just like, yeah, this is what happens. Yeah, This is what exactly. happens all the time after right. you kill the coroner and steal your child's body. Yeah. Of course, you're going to put a rune on top of this thing. Vernon says he's sorry about what happened to Chion's daughter, and it's not right that he didn't have her body. And I love Chion's response because when Chion is in this movie, he seems standoffish and cold, but dedicated. And his response, even to his best friend Vernon, follows that trail. He's that has nothing to do with anything, and Vernon knows it. And so that is just who Chion is. He is just this very cold guy, very matter of fact, and don't try and sway him with any sentimentality because he knows it's all BS. Vernon goes into the cabin, makes a sandwich. He's reading through the police report. He grabs his bow, a knife, and her picture and heads out, only pausing long enough to burn the police report and to notice that the decorative wolf mask from the mantle is missing. Before he leaves Keylote, though, he stops to see the old Yupik wise woman and he walks in completely silent. Doesn't say a word, sits down and she knows why he's there. She knows things like the fact that he should have died in the war, but came back. And she tells this story from her youth that when the white people came, they brought influenza and they killed half the village and they moved the bodies away from the village into an igloo on the hill. And that drew wolves who came and ate the bodies. That, she says, is why Keelu is cursed. Vernon doesn't say a word. He just stands up and kills her. Yeah. And Skarsgård's really good at this unemotional, efficient yes. character. He, yeah. He does it in several things I've seen him in. Yep. 
Kor's in his hotel room. He tries to call his daughter, but she's not in, so he leaves a message, and he lies in bed trying to sleep. And when he does, Medora appears in his bed next to him and tells him that there's something wrong with the sky. And then, of course, he's just imagining it or he's falling asleep, but he's been journaling the whole thing. And as he's writing, he thinks about the old woman in Kilut. He tries to get a hold of Miriam, but the line gets cut, so he decides to head back to Kilut. Miriam, on the other hand, is at the coroner's office investigating the dead people and the missing body of Bailey, and now he's headed to Kilut, bringing all the police with him. Not just one or two, he's bringing all the police. He gets, Cor gets there and goes in to see the old woman, finds her body, stumbles out of another Kilut cabin, and starts to throw up. And he's looking for help from the police who have all pulled up and surrounded Chion's house. Yeah. And putting vests on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And putting vests on. Miriam decides he's going to try talking to Chion about this. And you can hear Chion running a drill in the loft as he's approaching. He knocks and Chion opens the door and Miriam shows him that he's unarmed. And the conversation between them is verbatim lifted from the novel. And the way they do it is so well done. It's civil, but hostile at the same time. Yes. And basically the gist of the conversation is Miriam saying, look, this doesn't have to get ugly. Just come with us. And Chian saying, you've never done anything for our people. And dead cop around here's reason for a party. And so, you know, this is not going to end well. Chian makes this statement about how cores, about how Miriam's wife is going to get that call. She's going to get that call today, chief. And it talks about the whole scene, the whole conversation talks about the massive cultural differences between rural citizens of Alaska and the city folk, how they brought bathrooms to them. They brought power to them. And there's no moving Chion from this. And so Cor walks back. Cor, Miriam walks back. And we've seen this type of exact same type of thing with still the people that live in the mountains down south as opposed to city folk. It's that exact same type of feel to it. What follows is this extended, gruesome shootout, which accurately depicts the power of an M60 when you have it rooted down. Because you see all these cop shows where they're hiding behind car doors. That's not stopping these rounds. No, and you saw it go right through the vest a couple times. Right through the body armor. There's nothing short of an engine block is going to protect you from that kind of firepower. Or a granite rock. Or a granite rock. That's right. Chian's just starts mowing the police down. And the only thing that saved Miriam at the start, Kor shows up and he warns him when the door opens. And so Miriam dives for cover. The violence is so brutal and accurate. It lessens a lot of similar scenes in other films. Yes. And it's not the action scene like you've seen a lot with people on yelling and stuff. It's almost quiet except for people getting hit and hurt and the gun. There's not a lot of yelling and the brava of this action scene. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. Yeah, and even at that, the first guy who gets hit in the head, and it's not like his head explodes like it would in like your typical kind of action film. It just like rips off the bottom half of his jaw, and you're like, oh, that's pretty graphic, but that's like fairly accurate of a depiction that round is not going to slow down. It's not going to ricochet. Yeah. It's just going to go <laughs> and, and it's going to take stuff with it. Yep. <laughs> uh, Marion makes this plan with a rookie and he and the rookie go behind this rock and the rookie fires at 
Cheon and Miriam runs to the back door of the cabin and it shows his poise under fire. Like he makes sure that the guy double checks his ammo and has him repeat back the instructions. He gets to the back door. He cautiously lets himself in bypassing booby traps that are set up around there. And he quietly makes his way up the stairs. And you got to think that'd be a crazy difficult thing to do with all of the mayhem that's going on. Knowing every second is another thousand rounds out the barrel of that gun. You contrast that with the rookie who is behind the rock and decides he's going to come out and be a hero and help a downed officer only to get himself shot. And then Cheon does that thing where you keep shooting the same guy in non-lethal locations. So he screams to try and bring out people to rescue him so you can take out more people. Kor can't stand to see him doing that. And so Kor takes a shotgun and being an experienced hunter, he doesn't come out just blasting. He takes a well-aimed shot and fires. And, and it's close enough that Cheon backs off. I was going to say that. Even with all the cops shooting, he was just sitting there shooting back and stuff. But then you get the hunter that comes in and he's ducking and avo- trying to avoid it. Yep. He only takes well-aimed shots at his target. And he gets to the kid and he starts to drag the kid clear. Miriam gets up the stairs and it, it, Cheon turns around. He knows he's there. He turns around. He looks like he's been hit a couple times, maybe. And they continue to have this kind of passive-aggressive conversation, but it's only Chion talking. And he's, looks like your wife avoided that call, but it's coming. And you can see he's got a gun, and he says, boo. And when he says, boo, Marion unloads into him. Yeah. And I like when he's falling out the window, that they show his leg getting hit. That's something they normally wouldn't show. And it was, as he's falling, his leg gets hit. By another bullet. I was like, wow, that's just a little thing that doesn't really mean a whole lot that I can tell, but it just felt different, added to the whole scene. And you got to think that the cops on the outside, when the gun stops and he turns, they're going to be cautiously checking to see if they can poke their heads out. And as soon as they get the chance, they're going to unload whoever's (laughs) left. And I think that's what you're seeing. It cuts to the afterwards scene. And you have the wounded and the dead cops being brought into the ER. And Miriam sees his wife. She's pregnant. It's really interesting to me. The filmmaker made a point of making her native. Yeah. In the book, she's just some girl of Irish background. But by making her native in the movie, it draws Miriam more into the culture that he's trying to serve. True. Yeah. We now cut to Vernon, who arrives at this old mining post, and he's looking for information on Medora. He stops at this kind of motel of the camp and claims he was there as a child. The woman at the desk blows off his questions about Medora, and eventually he's persistent enough. She relents and says that she had been there two nights ago. She'd been there to see the Indian hunter, who she points out isn't Indian. He's just been around for a long time. She shows Vernon to the room, and he sniffs the bedding like some sort of animal tracking his prey and then he goes off to see the indian hunter the indian hunter again he's not really indian but he's been in the area forever the novel actually does a really good job of kind of vilifying the guy and the movie doesn't do that at all which makes vernon seem just a little bit colder in this scene yeah than he is in the book but again this whole thing with him killing you could look at it if he was a wolf in the wolf pack it was something like that he's taking out loose ends or the weak and stuff in his mind, at least. Yeah. 
again, there's parallels throughout the whole thing. Before we go back to the Indian hunter, though, we cut back to this scene. They're at Miriam's house. Cora's joined him and his wife for dinner. She's pregnant. There's this dining room scene that's very nice. And they talk about parenthood and regret and reflection. It's basically Cora saying having kids is amazing. And you think you're doing all the right things. And you look back on it. You really weren't. You're really just going about your life. And it makes you sad as you look back on it. And I think that's a good standing point for aging in general. Back at the Indian hunter camp, he says he knows why Vernon's there. He feeds him some stew, and he remembers seeing Vernon as a child. He tells this story of how Vernon's father had brought him up there seeking wolf's oil because Vernon was unnatural and he wanted to cure him. Vernon asked where Medora went, and the guy said it wasn't his business. She left her mask, so her mask is sitting there. And he's got a bunch of other masks. And if Vernon wants one, he can have one. And so Vernon walks over. He doesn't take Medora's. He picks a wolf mask off the wall and puts it on and then proceeds to commit a violent act, killing the Indian hunter. And from here on out, every violent act that Vernon's going to commit, he's wearing that mask. So you get back to the argument. Is it possession and yep. uh, or channeling the spirits and doing what they want, the wolf spirit or something? There again. A lot of arguments could be made. Yep. He takes off the mask, returns to his truck, only to end up getting shot by the lady who runs the hotel. And she does an awesome job of it, putting one through his shoulder while he's driving away. Yeah. Yeah. So I must say throughout the movie, these Alaskan women are pretty damn tough. Don't mess with them. No. In fact, the wounded Vernon ends up going to ground at a garage run by his friend Shan, who is played by the screenwriter, Macon Blair. We're introduced to Shan as he's doing coke and watching the news about Cheon and Vernon and the whole mess. Here's this noise in his garage and heads out to investigate and finds a barely conscious Vern in the garage and lets him know that Cheon's dead. Then he proceeds to patch him up. And he's like, so who shot you? Vernon's like, a woman. <laughs> and Shan says, who ain't been shot by a woman? I'm like, <laughs> wow, okay. Apparently it's a very different kind of situation up there because I don't know that I can think of anyone I know personally who's been shot by a woman. Though I wouldn't put it past Shan if she really got mad at you. <laughs> Maybe buckshot, um, but... <laughs> we go back to Miriam as he and Cora are doing the dishes. Cora compliments Miriam on how he handled himself, and Miriam says he gave him what he wanted. And Miriam's not sure that answers exist for all this stuff that's happened, and Cora tells him they do. Whether or not they fit in our experience is another matter. And there you have the culture clashes again. Because what you might see is some act of barbarism from a different side of that coin that might actually have some meaning. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, I love that because I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form, but there's a lot of times I hear people saying things and it's, no, it's an animal. It's, oh, let's go feed the deer. But now you're making them come around people so someone's go hit it with a car and cause damage and possibly kill a person or, or just. There's all sorts of things like that. No, that's not what you do. That's not actually understanding them and being nice and taking care of them. (laughs) Yeah. Cora says Medora seemed to want to have wanted to fix Bailey, to save him from the darkness, almost like chemotherapy where you do damage to save living tissue. He thinks she wanted a witness to tell her story and to punish her. And that's why she wrote to him. Miriam mentions going on a Caribbean vacation and that trips Cora's memory about the hot springs. 
now we cut to this memory of Vernon and Medora going to the hot springs and having sex. And if I had to guess, that's probably where Bailey was conceived. Probably. And this is one of the least like intensely romantic sex scenes. Oh yeah. It's not at all. Yeah. She says we can stay in this place forever. And this, it turns out was Vernon's dream as he's waking up from passing out from his Shan stitching him up. He wakes in over here, Shan talking to the cops on the phone and Shan is talking to the cops because he's been busted for having drugs and he wants to turn Vernon in, in a way of good civil obedience to hope you get a lighter sentence. So Vernon comes out of the bedroom wearing the wolf mask and Shan kind of begs for his life saying, I was going to let you know so you could get away, but whether or not Vernon believes him, it doesn't matter. He puts a knife directly into the top of Shan's head. Yeah. Is it really that easy to stick a knife through someone's skull? That's a little scary. Depends on how sharp it is and how much force you've got. Miriam and Cor, the next day, are getting into a Cessna. And the funny thing is they were talking about doing the stunts. And the guy who played Cor was talking about they were so careful that even when they were doing the interior shots of the Cessna, the plane was on the ground and the crew was on the outside wiggling the wings back and forth. So it looked like everything was moving. He didn't think that this was like a high risk kind of film. It's the old Star Trek lean. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It doesn't look cheesy as you're watching the movie, but I watched for it after I saw that interview. I'm like, oh yeah, check that out. They shoot it so that you can only see sky. You can't see the hangar in the background. Miriam is going to fly it. And the two of them are headed out to the hot spring. Core doesn't seem too big on the idea. It also happens to be the solstice, which again, with the whole mythical connection, the solstice, the darkest time of the year, was marked by ancient peoples as an important time. There's this seemingly unrelated shot of two people who look like trappers on a snowmobile. They hear the plane and they look up and watch it fly over. Core notes them. Miriam asks if they're the people they're looking for and Core's like, no. They head down to the hot springs and Miriam puts the plane down on the ice of a pond. Which you would think, wow, that could be a little scary, but it hasn't been above freezing for months. So you probably got seven, eight inches of ice there. Feet. You've got feet of ice there. They land on the ice and they start hiking towards the cave and Cor finds new tracks of four wolf prints. As they're looking around, Cor thinks he sees something up on the ridge. Now, let me, here's another supernatural argument there. The wolf yeah. prints. Is that the wolf pack or is that Vernon and his wife that there's you know, some transformational thing going on? It, it, again, it left it very open, but I was like, oh my gosh, you, you could argue that. Yeah. And they were two wolves, about a hundred pounds each. And he imagines they were heading for wherever the, whatever the den is where the rest of the pack was. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He's looking around and he just makes out Vernon with the wolf mask on and a composite bow. And just as he's about to say something, this arrow goes flying and goes straight through Miriam's neck. Yep. Not, and they show from the back too. It doesn't go just through his neck. It's at an angle. So it comes out middle of his back. I was like, wow, yep. that, and the strength for that arrow for the distance. Jeez. You got to consider the pull on those because they're used to hunting large animals, not elk, obviously, but like reindeer and that kind of thing. So you've got to have a whole lot of force behind that arrow. It did. <laughs> yeah. Core drags him to cover. Vernon just walks away. Core was never the target. And Miriam dies right there in the snow. 
Yeah, the, mean, yeah, there was no choice there. <laughs> Core takes the gun, fires a shot into the woods. Which, um, that's the one part I would argue. If he's that professional of a hunter, would he have just shot wildly into the woods without seeing a target? So. That's what um, I was wondering. It turns out it's super important he did that. And we'll come back to it. Why that's okay. so important. But from his point of view, I'm thinking he fires a shot into the woods in the hope of getting himself some cover. Okay. So if he fires a shot into the woods, Vernon can't necessarily see him because he's firing from cover and just a bullet coming at you is enough to make you a little more cautious. So if you're standing there poised, you might take a step back. Yeah, but this is an army guy who is sitting on top of a jeep with a gun and a shield and didn't flinch at all when they started shooting at him. So Core doesn't know bullet, that. It just seems... I, I, it seemed uncharacteristic. Yeah, exactly. Just a wild shot into the woods without seeing the target, compared, considering earlier. Super important thing to happen, though, and you'll find out why in a second. Okay, okay. I missed uh, Starts out on a run to the hot spring, and just as he gets there... You hear a wolf howl in the distance. It was just this nice little detail they threw in there just yeah. as he gets to the hot spring. He heads inside and his eyes are adjusting the darkness and he sees Medora and he warns her that Vernon is coming. And then he takes an arrow in the shoulder. Now, the arrow is perfectly placed because it could have very easily just killed him. And it was a light pull because the arrow doesn't go all the way through. Yes. The masked Vernon walks in right past Core. Just ignores Kor as he slumps down to the ground and starts to strangle Medora. And sh- at first, she's not fighting him. It's that punishment thing that Kor was talking about. Then she reaches out. It's funny to say how you want punished until you're actually being punished. Then she reaches out and flails around and she takes the mask off of him. As soon as she does, he stops trying to kill her and they start making out. Even seemingly going as far as having sex while Kor is lying on the ground bleeding out. That would be a weird way to die in a hot spring cave. <laughs> As you're bleeding out in this hot spring yeah. cave in Alaska. Yeah. It sounds like it should be a card in Cards Against Humanity. Vernon comes back later as Meridora is packing everything up. He removes the arrow, does it like this, not being mean. He like takes the arrow head off, puts a hand on the wound, pulls the arrow out, gives Cor a cigarette. And Cor says, they're looking for you. And Vernon says like the whole thing that encapsulates the relationship between the two of them. He says, but you found me. Yeah. And the respect between the hunter and the killer is right there. Just depicted Vernon and Medora just leave. Then Medora asks him if now he understands about the sky and she walks out. Here's your supernatural thing because she didn't say anything about the sky except for in that dream he had in the motel. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is she of the spirit world? Was she just following the instincts of that? Again, from the human world, it looks like they're killers and crazy, but yeah. Real quick. I wrote down a line. This is another, it was earlier after Vernon shot the cops. There was a line he said where sometimes you need to let the wolf out a little. That's another good line. The Indian uh, hunter. Yeah. Yeah, sorry we missed that one. Go ahead. No, it's a good. That's a good catch. Core manages to crawl out of the cave, stumble a few steps across the snow before he collapses and continues to crawl forward. And we can see wolves in the distance, looking down at him from the ridge. 
He sees them too, and he just keeps watching them. In the book, they point out that Kor actually wanted to be killed by wolves. And so that would have been perfect for him. Yeah, it's a way of paying back for what the sin that he had committed. But then we get this point of view as a snowmobile we saw earlier shows up, and the trappers load him up and take him away. How did the trappers know to come to where he was at? Because they heard a gunfire earlier in a spot where people weren't supposed to be. Oh, yeah, I was wondering about that. I didn't put that together. Got it. That's yeah. why that gunshot was so important. But I see, I was wondering if the wolves led them. That could so, be too. Because they don't say specifically. Right. The hunt, the trappers do tell him that the wolves spared him and they take him back to their camp where the native women are patching him up and it's inter- dis- and interspersed with shots of Vernon collecting Bailey's body. Also interspersed with wolves on the hunt. And we get this glimpse. See, I don't know about this part. We get this glimpse of an albino woman who is there with the natives while they're patching core up and she leaves at the end when it seems like he's stable. We also get this glimpse of a mated pair of wolves running away. The thing that I'm hedging on is I wasn't going to talk about the twist in the book. That lady has everything to do with the twist in the book. She's got nothing to do with the movie at all. Yeah. Aside from that five second scene where she stands up, looks back, smiles, turns around and walks out the door. It really is like just this whole thing that the director put in. If you read the book, just to tie it back to the book itself. I don't know. It was just really odd. Yeah, that's nice. But you just saying that, and like you said, she never showed up anywhere else and a little weird. Again, just from the movie aspect, there's arguments what supernatural paranormal stuff is going on. Yes. Especially the way they shot that between everybody. Yeah. The movie ends with Cor waking up in a hospital and his daughter sitting by his hide, holding his hand. And she asks him what happens. And he says, he'll tell her. And then it fades to black and please come home for Christmas starts playing with the credits. Yeah. yeah which they kept I heard a couple times it's Christmas, but that really doesn't come across. <laughs> not at all. End. Yeah. Yeah. This is not a Christmas movie. Yeah. I'm going to add it to the list right after Rudolph. Yeah, for sure. Kind of bring everything down a little bit. Yeah. It's too joyous. We need to get real. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. Hold the Dark. And the title itself, it's one of those that what exactly does it mean in reference to the movie? It could be argued that they're, the mask held the dark and let it out through them, that they held the dark within them. But again, if they were wolf spirits or channeling that, is it really what we consider the dark or is it? Another reference just to the time of the year. All of those. Yeah. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. And did you ever see It Comes at Night? It doesn't. Maybe. I don't. It's not ringing a bell what it's about, but. Riley Kia was in it. The girl who played Medora was in that movie as well. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this was more of a horror movie than It Comes at Night was. Because It Comes at Night was such a disappointment. There really was nothing to it. It was like this whole study of people in crisis and how they'll react to strangers showing up. This just had so much more overtones to it that it felt to me much more like a Cujo, kind of a nature kind of 
If you read the book Cujo, there is this supernatural thread that kind of happens because things from the dog's point of view and there's all this other weird stuff that happens. It doesn't come across if you're just looking at it, saying it out loud. Yeah. And this movie's very similar in that manner. Yeah. I, again, it, it, if you watch the movie, you should watch it a second time. It's definitely, yep. uh, again, it's not one you're like, hey, let's watch a horror movie for Halloween. It's not that type no, of movie at no, all. No, not at all. I don't even know that I would watch this with a group of people. And not yeah. just because it's, this is like a sit down and reflects on your life kind of movie. I can see multiple people I know, like, halfway through the movie going, yeah, I don't get that leaving. All right. Sure. Hold the dark. So what's up next for episode two of season three? We've got a big name. We've got some big name stars in the next one a yeah. movie called bone Tomahawk. Yeah. One of those awesome, bizarre Western slash horror crosses. They're rare to come across, but they're usually pretty enjoyable. A little more. I haven't seen this one. So is it a little more horrific than aliens versus cowboys? Yes. More than Wild West? There are things you will see there that you'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe they did that. Wow. Okay. So another good horror movie coming up next. It's also a little problematic. I'm just going to throw that out there. Ooh. Hey, like those. (laughs) Yeah. All right. All right. Creature slips from perception. Pay attention. It will rise again.